Support for this podcast comes from Blackline and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Dan Crum, CFO of the Kansas City Chiefs, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is Episode 249. As a finance leader, are you driving driving change in your organization? How are you driving change within your organization? Hello, CFO Thought Leader listeners. We have a special presentation for you today. Last spring, we had the opportunity to feature CFO Michael Waxman Lenz of Undertone as our guest on the CFO Thought Leader podcast. And part of what Michael shared with us at the time was a company's private-to-public journey. And the story had something of a twist to it. Michael's journey was not an IPO journey. It was triggered by a private firm being acquired by a publicly held one. Now, it's not an uncommon story these days, but we knew it was one that many firms could benefit from. And so we thought, let's develop a webinar and invite Michael to take a deeper dive with us and chart the action steps and milestones that allowed his team to rapidly transform the firm's internal controls, allowing it to achieve initial and ongoing compliance. Um, And so that's exactly what we did. And as we developed the webinar, our thought was then, how do we help apply some of the lessons Michael will be sharing uh, to a to a broader audience, and we knew Steve Hobbs of Protivity could do just that. Now, Steve is a managing director of Protivity's public company transformation practice, and so what you'll be hearing today is both Michael and Steve, followed by Susan Parcells. Now, Susan is a senior director of Blackline's finance transformation practice, and she accepted our invitation to join what was a webinar panel. And Susan's a return guest who always brings some great uh, cross-industry perspective to our discussions. So what we wanted to do is repackage the content from the live webinar and tailor it for you, our mobile on-demand audience. Now, whether you're listening uh, via iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your listening platform might be, we want to give you the option of accessing the visual content that accompanied this webinar. So if you'd like for us to send you a PDF of the slides that were featured or the URL uh, for the on-demand viewing of the webinar, just text us the word COMPLIANCE to 33444, and we'll send them right off to you. Again, just text us the word COMPLIANCE to 33444, and you'll shortly receive a PDF of the slides that accompanied this discussion, along with the on-demand URL if you wanted to just view it from start to finish. And so we're pleased to bring you this, and it's been titled Taking Preemptive Action in the Age of Compliance Readiness. But first, some words from our supportive sponsor. Many accounting and finance professionals are facing a sizable obstacle these days. In this age of data enlightenment, 
Their financial closed processes leave no time for data analysis, the very activity that opens the door to new opportunities and career advancement. Blackline has the answer. By automating, centralizing, and streamlining financial close operations, Blackline customer organizations are now ready for the data-centric world, allowing their finance and accounting professionals to open the door to new opportunities. To learn more, visit blackline.com forward slash CFO. Now, we begin by asking Michael Waxman-Lenz, CFO of Undertone, to share his private-to-public journey. Now, a few facts about Michael. Michael joined Undertone from its acquiring firm, Perion Networks, where Michael was the chief strategy officer and head of corporate development. Previously, Michael was a, a CFO of American Greetings Digital Divisions, and earlier in his career, he managed a venture capital firm in Central Asia. So here's Michael. Thank you very much, Jack. And I think this is a very appropriate title to call it a journey, because I think there's a little bit of a misperception that an IPO is the birth of a company. Um, it's obviously the birth uh, of a public company, but companies already have a history, and I think that's really important, and I think you'll hear all of us, all three of us talk how important the history of a company is in terms of uh, the IPO and the public process, and how do you get there is really only a manifestation of the of, the, of that point of time. So, Jack, ref, you refer to the Undertone situation, and I think this is a great example because Undertone was a privately held company. It was a 15-, 16-year-old company. They had a two-year plan they called IPO readiness. And Steve will talk a lot about this. They had hired a company, similar to Steve, to prepare an IPO, IPO over a two-year period. They were on a list of 20 ad tech companies here in New York, most likely to go public. And then the company I was uh, working with, we approached the private equity firm with obviously an attractive enough offer that they engaged in due diligence. And at the end of this dil uh, diligence, there was an acquisition date. And so the two years really turned into an instant IPO. And so there was no two-year planning process. The company had started. They had brought in, we'll talk about this in more detail, had brought in a controller, other qualified staff to get the company ready. But they were really in the early stages. And then, you know, we have to even think about those six months prior to the acquisition, which usually prior to an IPO, you would work intensely on becoming public. Here, this is an intense due diligence period that actually distracts the team from even the readiness process, and that was true for Undertone. They were working on, they meant to launch their new uh, accounting system, upgrade the system. Uh, we, as the acquirer, we were basically distracting them. And so as a result, when you think about it, you know, the unexpected is you have the day of acquisition and suddenly you have to comply with, with the filings, the SEC filings. We even had uh, comments from the SEC. We had to file additional financials. And so uh, that really puts a lot of strain on an organization. 
And everything that you've done in the years before, in this case it was 15 plus years, is coming back to you uh, in terms of, you know, what do we have to fix? What do we have to clean up? What does or does not comply? So I think that's why it is really a journey almost from the day that a company is starting out. And I'll talk in a little bit more detail about what I call these seven buckets, you know, how the organization uh, of your finance department and other functions, what background and education does your staff have, what controls are in place. Um, and overall, the financial management process of a company, the accounting, the FP&A, treasury functions, uh, your documentation, your policies and procedures, IT and legal. I'll keep it to those buckets, and Steve will then you know, give you a lot more granularity in terms of um, maybe an even more structured, more detailed approach what a company has to be ready for. Um, but I thought it would maybe be interesting for people to do put in uh, perspective the path to go public and what is happening in the overall marketplace. The requirements to be a public company are demanding, even though the Jobs Act made it maybe a little bit easier. It is, you have to bear costs. It is uh, uh, somewhat onerous to be public. And so, and the capital markets have to be willing to buy an, an offering. And so the capital markets have not been as friendly and open to IPOs in the uh, uh, recent past than maybe a few years ago. However, if you're in the tech sector, as, as I am as with our company, um, there are many other ways to, of course, uh, get liquidity for the original investors. And you see the majority are actually in the tech sector, at least. This is here the vertical I've picked because I know it best. Uh, there are a lot of private transactions. And you notice here the volume is quite substantial. And if you then drill deeper into what type of companies are actually acquiring, I think our our listeners will uh, will actually see a lot of names here on this particular list of uh, heavy acquirers, you know, that are quite familiar. The Dropbox, the Pinterest, um, Airbnb, all companies that are gaining rapid scale and have strong intentions to actually go public at some point. And so you notice the message is a lot of private transactions. But many of those transactions are with companies that want and maybe even will go public. And so uh, that means you have to be, you have to be ready uh, and follow their processes because they will <laughs> have the scale and the wherewithal and hopefully the market reception to go public. Twitter on the left-hand side had acquired 31 companies prior to going public. Facebook had acquired 29 companies and so forth. So you see Twitter and Facebook being public today as a Zynga. Mm -hmm. They were heavy acquirers prior to being um, public. And then in addition, especially in the tech sector, the most heavy acquirers are actually companies like Google. If you look at Google's history, I looked it up, they have made almost 200 acquisitions. Microsoft acquired more than 150 companies. Uh, Facebook by now has actually acquired more than 50 companies. So you notice becoming public is not necessarily a function of an IPO event where you're going public as an individual company, but it's more that undertone path where you 
end up being public via a private transaction, but you're owned by a public company. So that's what I wanted to give kind of as context why it is important for finance people, even you know if you're private today and or you're thinking about going uh, public, everything you're doing today will help you at some point if you're in the situation where you have to report and be, be managed as a public company. And so that sudden public without adequate preparation right, is, um, of course, very much depending on what did you do in the years prior to that event. Uh, and then it depends, you know, if you're a very material acquisition for a company. So in our case, that was true for Perion. Then you have to, your, your requirements with which you have to comply with are even higher. And so that's an important aspect to keep in mind. Um, you know, how ready are you? I sometimes jokingly say, uh, you don't get up one morning, even though I'd like to, and run a marathon on the first day, right? You practice, you, you take it in small increments, and I think that's true for us in finance. There are lots of processes, and you need to uh, look at what are these processes. You know, just to summarize this point, right, if you are becoming public via an acquisition, you have much less time in most instances to prepare, you have less control over the process, the timing, right? Uh, an acquirer, depending on negotiations on the seller, can move fast, slower, and you're under a lot of pressure due to due diligence. Um, in contrast to an IPO, where you have a new team that suddenly manages the public company, you obviously get some support, and that was true for Undertone. There's a great finance team in the parent company. They have experience with filings. They have that public company uh, context and background. And so you have a support infrastructure that you don't necessarily have if you go in public directly via an IPO, where you have to build all of that. So let's go to this question, what can you do in advance? And that's kind of about your history. Um, it matters a great deal what is your history, right? If you're a founder-led company um, without any outside capital where he or she control the company, can do what they want, you may have much less um, uh, clean financials than if you have already outside investors like venture capital firms or private equity firms that, of course, require a certain fiduciary responsibility, have board meetings that get documented, have regular financial updates. So all of that will either help you or hurt you. If you had additional acquisitions um, or in, also international operations, that makes your processes more complex. So an undertone situation, told you a 16-year-old company had made several acquisitions on their own as a private company, including international acquisitions. So you have to, you have to really work with a lot of complexity in the operation already. Did you do transfer pricing? Uh, intercompany payments, uh, foreign exchange gains and losses, all those <clears throat> processes, um, were they well documented or do you suddenly have to catch up and uh, later on, and again in the undertone case, the new staff, the new finance staff had to do a lot of catching up, documentation, cleanup, reconciliations that may not have tied out completely in the past. And you know, you're talking about years of activity 
And as a public company, you have just a higher bar uh, that you need to comply with. One area that finance people sometimes don't um, appreciate sufficiently are our colleagues and human resources and legal. So especially at Undertone, I have to say, benefited really significantly from a very strong head of HR, strong legal environment. So people that have been brought in the company um, while they were private and they built an infrastructure. To some extent, I found that uh, the HR infrastructure was maybe even stronger here than the financial infrastructure, including technology. And Susan will talk more about what technology can do for these processes in order to have standardized processes, efficient processes. That's you know you have audit trails that are based on systems. So if you have a good organizational structure, strong people already in these additional, what we call so lovingly GNA functions, besides finance, that will help you being a public company or going public under any circumstances. So my message to all listeners is it doesn't matter where you are in your journey, whether you're you know, one or two years away from an IPO or more than two years, you have to already look back. What are you doing today? What, are your, uh, what is your process for documentation? Because, as you said, we're living with the sins of the past when you move forward in finance. We can never just extract ourselves from what has happened. And um, I have to say, we live that every, every day, uh, that we still work on, uh, on projects that are going back two, three, four years, because something may not have been documented exactly the way you need it under your new operating. Um, so that's um, kind of in terms of history. And just to recap, I've touched on, on various uh, of these buckets, as I, as I call them, and I said Steve will be more granular. You know, organization, those were the examples, right? Um, do you have other functions like legal in place? Separation of duties. Uh, in the finance department is very challenging for small finance departments and organizations. And most of the time, you may not even want to invest that. Right? The company is trying to survive. It's trying to become profitable. Uh, the board of directors, the founders, their first thought is not, how can I spend more money on finance and compliance? Their thought, and let's admit it correctly, is how do I get the right product and sales in place? But that means right, your organization does not yet have the depth and maturity that you will need as a public company or as being part of a public company. The same applies to controlled processes. Right? Um, pu being public is uh, you're under a great deal more scrutiny. You have your quarterly audits. You have you know requirements that you just don't have as a private company. You can do the private company accruals at the end of the year. Well, as a public company, you, as best practice, you should be doing it anyway to uh, appropriately spread out your accruals for the right timing period. But um, many times convenience wins out, but that will later on hurt you and you have to redo that work. So the other parts are policy procedures, same thing. How much did you document? Um, what is available to auditors and other um, reviewing review processes? I leave it up to Susan to talk a lot, great deal more about IT and systems and what that can do. And uh, I touched on the legal uh, needs for a public company 
they're tremendously important what has been documented and the, the processes in place on the on the legal side. So go ahead, Jack. You wanted to do another poll, maybe, to ask what is what our listeners already have in place on some of the infrastructure elements that I talked about, such as having maybe a dedicated CFO. Many companies don't necessarily have that yet, or a general counsel or a senior HR leader. Yes, Michael. And here's what today's audience told us. Most all the companies in our live audience report they have a finance leader. Perhaps no surprise there, given this webinar uh, was designed for a finance leader audience. But meanwhile, only two-thirds of the listening audience told us they currently have an HR leader. And still fewer, only roughly uh, 40% of the audience told us they had an in-house legal counsel. Uh, so to Michael's point, uh, when functional leadership is perhaps less mature, the firm should expect to have to catch up in those areas and for this uh, audience, at least HR and legal would be uh, perhaps where there could be a compliance lag of some sort. Okay, so we now have Steve Hobbs, Managing Director of Protivity's Public Company Transformation Practice, joining us. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Um, and thank you, Michael. You know, it's 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 one thing to hear from a consulting firm, an experienced person in a consulting firm that's been advising companies that are dealing with growth-related issues, regardless of what they're preparing for in the future. But it's it's also great to get someone like Michael to provide that perspective of someone who has just recently been in the trenches uh, and and seen it from from their perspective. So. Um, I think he did a great job, Michael did a great job of, of setting the stage for um, what I really wanted to talk about today. Um, this, this idea that going becoming a public company, it really is a, a journey. Um, what we read about in the newspaper would be, um, we'd see somebody ringing the, the bell, right, at one of the stock exchanges. So a lot of companies, that's what they, that's what they think about when uh, they think about going public. But um, that's certainly an event, um, but it really is. It's, it's all about transforming the company, whether because all companies have some kind of an exit strategy or fundraising strategy, and and generally it's those companies that are experiencing growth. Um, as we talked about before, the uh, investment in infrastructure. I've served on a few board of directors myself, and so we're always asking that question: What's the return on investment. So in the early years of all organizations, the, the, the funding is being driven towards product development, research, sales, and marketing, developing a, a business model. Because if you don't, if you can't be successful in those areas, then some of these other areas that are really important, not only to be public, but just simply to scale as an organization, um, they're really not important because you can't prove out the business model. So I, some of the things to think about as you're listening to this is that fast-growing companies that are preparing to, to go public or be acquired, those companies are not only dealing with the issues of, of whatever the compliance requirements are, but they're also dealing with issues related to skill, excuse me, scaling their business. And so it's oftentimes when companies are, are thinking about 
well, when do I need to make investments in my back office infrastructure? When does that going to impede my ability to scale the organization? And should the founders and the board want to raise money through an IPO or be acquired? You know, am I, when do I start making that in investment? And that's not easy. Uh, that's not an easy question to answer oftentimes for companies, but it's, it's an important one for companies to be thinking about because they don't want to find themselves having to do a lot of catch up um, on their on their infrastructure in a relatively short period of time. I use the analogy of when we think about um, an acquisition or an IPO, we think about the celebrations, ringing the bell at the stock exchanges, but then the day after that, companies then come back and realize, okay, now we're a public company or now we're a subsidiary of a public company. What does that mean? And that can be a, a pretty shocking experience. So you don't want to find yourself on day two after the, after the transaction that you look at your ability not only to be compliant and report and do all those things, but really think about the growth strategy of the organization and your ability to, to scale. So I guess with that preamble, um, what I wanted to do was, and again, if you're not going public, just think about these areas on the left-hand side of the screen. For our podcast audience, I'm going to read these items off to you. And again, if you want a copy of Steve's slides or today's presentation, just text us the word compliance at 33444. But the six key items Steve has listed are the first one accurate financial reporting and effective forecasting next efficient financial close next appropriate corporate governance and SOX compliance next scalable IT environment next effective registration statement process and finally organizational capabilities successful companies at at some point in their in their life cycle um, they've got to be able to do some of those things um, you may not have to do Sarbanes-Oxley compliance because um, you may never be a, a public company but all of these areas that are listed on the side are going to be really critical I think to the to the business um, perhaps with the exception of developing a registration statement a registration statement is what's required to to uh, to to become effective, um, to become a public company. That's um, you have to go through that process, but that could be done by uh, what I've said is always said is that if you've got uh, if you devote enough resources to around developing a, a document filed with the SEC and disclosed to investors, you can use brute force to make that happen. But many of those other areas, um, those things take time to develop. They, they require some, some, some appropriate planning. So you, you've probably looked through those, um, those objectives and maybe some of the questions. And so the, 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 the issue is, so at what point do you start to, when do you ask those questions? And at what point do you start doing something about it? Can we, can we start chipping away at some of those things? So certainly the, the financial reporting in the organization um, 
you've got to have good, accurate, and timely information, not only for reporting externally to investors and others, but in today's world, we need good KPIs, we need metrics, we need business intelligence reporting, and having that being crisp and accurate is just is just absolutely essential for, for a company. Um, and many pre-IPO companies find themselves um, pretty good at closing their books, um, but they're not very good at forecasting. And if you, no matter what kind of company you want to be, you want to be acquired, you want to be a public company, the ability to forecast your business accurately um, is going to be critical. As a public company, it's an absolute must because if you can't forecast your business um, and do it in a way that, and, and your peers can, then um, that's going to be problematic for going public and certainly going to be, a, uh, if you're able to get out, it's going to be problematic going forward because it's all about managing the expectation of others around reporting. So as you think about the finance organization, think about the historical reporting, but also as much effort, at least as much effort or more needs to put in around reporting for the future. Um, the financial close as an organization, again, that's an area you might be lean and mean and resources. Um, We've worked with a number of companies who, in the social media space where they were north of $100 million of, of revenue, um, have never been audited by an external auditor, um, really never had a formal close of the books, um, perhaps using um, a spreadsheet or uh, QuickBooks or something that clearly isn't scalable. So for that, if you find yourself in that kind of a situation, um, and there's everything along that that spectrum of uh, of all those areas I just discussed, you you've got an awful significant lift. And and making taking the close process and making that efficient and effective, it takes time. Time it takes, and you need to do it through several cycles to to make that happen. So the close takes on a whole new meaning. It's not just getting the numbers to stop, but it's all of the reporting and analysis that needs to be done. The FP&A, the close is oftentimes a significant part of the, the financial planning and analysis group. Um, for a company that's thinking about potentially being a public company, the idea of governance, um, you know, they don't like governance generally in a lot of companies, right? They, they think it, uh, it, it brings restriction. What I think it really brings, what I think governance brings is, is some organization, some focus, and probably some needed discipline. Um, if you're a public company, you're going to need to be compliance with, compliant with Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, and so that's, again, that's something that you just can't flip a switch and you have it. That requires some thought around how, what kind of governance, what kind of tone do we want to have? what kind of compliance requirements, and how do we put that into our organization. Um, your IT environment, um, technology is, is what's driving many of our businesses. Um, we may be less mature in how we use technology, how we control technology, and how we secure technology. So that's going to be something that's, that's pretty important um, and an area oftentimes, quite candidly, where uh, boards say let's We'll, we'll we'll figure that out later. Uh, let's let's invest in the other things. So there's some catch up. 
Uh, we talked about the registration statement process and how you could do that by brute force. You could make that happen. Um, but it, there, is a, a t there, there is an opportunity for careful planning and to start chipping away at those things. You'll find that if you're preparing for an IPO or a, an acquisition, the company just is going to be completely overwhelmed with due diligence and requests. And so one of the key things is how do you keep that from being a distraction to the day-to-day -day business of the organization? So some planning and thought around how we do that process, how we coordinate that, um, there's certainly some ways to do that to minimize the disruption to your business and potentially the toll it might take on, on your people. The last thing is the organizational capabilities. One of the things we see with fast-growing companies is when do you bring in these other disciplines outside of, um, when do you bring in a CFO? Um, when do you need to bring in general counsel, HR? And then, you know, a real, a real tough question oftentimes for companies is when is it that, the, that, the, uh, that we have to make that, that decision that perhaps the team that's brought it to this point is not going to be the same team that can take us going forward. And certainly if we're going to be, if we're thinking about scale, if we're thinking about compliance and other reporting requirements, that's, a, that's kind of a gut check for the management team, particularly for the founders. And, and so thinking about that in advance. Um, so these are the types of things that companies um, are going to have to deal with. You're not going to read about them in the, in the, uh, in the Wall Street Journal and the other uh, capital markets, right, about the IPO. You're going to hear about the roadshow and all the things related to that. But these are critical for a, for a business in order to scale and successfully uh, grow the business. So what's, um, you know, with any kind of a key strategic initiative, um, we're always told and consulted that really the important part related to that has got to be the planning, the upfront planning, because if you don't do the planning right, then there's always risk on that execution. So one of the things I thought I would show is, so if you find yourself in that situation, you're preparing for the future, you're going through significant growth, you may have underinvested in infrastructure in those areas. So how do you go about deciding where, where do you start? I mean, how do we start chipping away at some of these areas so they don't come, come at us all at once? So this is, a, this is a sample deliverable from an exercise where we helped the company look at various areas in the organization. Again, for our podcast listening audience, Steve's visual is what he has labeled a prioritization heat map. And it's interesting. It plots, let's call them 27 different items, uh, compliance items, according to their urgency and the effort that's required uh, behind them. For instance, S1 preparation has been plotted with effort being high and urgency now, where, say, the tax function, um, its effort is plotted as low and the urgency is designated post-IPO, so not as urgent. And based on the level of effort and the urgency, uh, this company, particular company, was preparing for an IPO, we looked at some of those areas. You can see it's the registration statement, specific things that needed to be done in accounting and finance. What, had, what needed to happen across, cross-functionally across the organization? What new skills were they going to need to have? 
um, how are we going to put governance and a compliance structure in this organization? And then really what was going to need to happen around technology? So in this particular case of the hundreds of things that might surface to the top, what this company did was said, let's put a priority around those items because we know there's lots of things that need to be done, but let's prioritize them in a way and then let's decide, let's put together a detailed timeline and a roadmap on when they need to be done. Some things may need to be done now, some things can wait, and some things can happen, can happen after. So this is a process, again, which requires a little discipline, um, and you want to do it certainly at, at the front end, uh, but it's got on the back end of this, this can be very helpful as you execute your growth strategies, as you execute your transaction, um, and it can be a pretty healthy experience for the, certainly for the, the organization because it's, it's really thinking through what needs to be done and how are we going to get there. So Jack, that's kind of a, um, an overview maybe of, of some of the, some of the how-tos or if you find yourself in this situation, what should we be doing about it? And maybe here's a, here's a way to put some organization around it, some prioritization, a thoughtful way to, to try to make the whatever whatever the strategic initiatives to try to make it happen. CFO thought leader listeners don't go anywhere. Susan Parcells of Blackline will be joining us to explore the role technology plays in compliance readiness right after these words from a supportive sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Susan Parcells of Blackline now joins us. And Susan, uh, we've been referring to compliance readiness as really being a game of catch-up for most uh, fast-growing firms that clearly have many concerns as they seek to scale. But as with any game, there are winners and losers. So what sets the winners apart here as far as uh, those firms that are able to catch up and address lagging processes? Great question, Jack. I think, you know, a lot of it is really taking the time to look at our current accounting and finance processes and identifying, you know, how are we really doing with them? We see oftentimes that organizations, and really it doesn't even necessarily matter if they're publicly traded or they're still private, if they're on that pathway to go public, where, you know, they're, they're checking off the box, they're doing all the different activities that they need to do, um, but there might be some gaps or there might be a lot of inefficiencies. And, you know, as I was listening to both Michael and Steve talk about, you know, just all of the different complexities that go along with an organization that, that wants to go public and then is public but having to scale as the, as the business continues to grow, you know, if we don't start looking at ways to automate some of our processes, 
to gain some of those efficiencies in the normal day-to-day -day activities that we're doing, we're really going to put ourselves at risk because we've got to be able to take on all of these new challenges that come our way. And what we're seeing is, especially for finance and accounting organizations, they're being asked to do a lot more, um, and oftentimes they're not given additional resources from a people perspective. So what I kind of wanted to really focus in on is looking at your accounting finance team and how can we prepare them so that as we go public and as we continue to grow and scale, you know, we really are in a position where we're ready to take on not just the additional work that comes along with being a publicly traded company, but then also all of the other activities that we're probably going to find ourselves uh, becoming involved in. And, you know, when we think about are, is your finance and accounting teams ready? Um, what does this really mean? It's looking at things like, can we close our books in a timely, accurate, and reliable manner? Uh, do we have good internal controls? And when I say that, you know, it's really, it's really diving in and making sure that, again, we truly are meeting those internal controls. I'll give you a, a brief example of that. You know, we see many organizations one of their key controls is that all balance sheet accounts are reviewed, yet in many cases, when I go out and talk to a lot of different organizations, and again, it doesn't really matter what size they are, it doesn't matter what industry they're in or what geographical location, we see that oftentimes they don't have the confidence that all of their balance sheet accounts are being reconciled. Um, and that right there is, is a bit of a, a risk for companies. Uh, it's also asking the question, can we be a strategic business partner uh, to all of our different leaders within the organization? You know, our sales team, our marketing team, our operations team, anybody else that may need our assistance so that they can make good business decisions. Um, and then also, can we provide reliable, dependable forecasts? And can we do it in a, in a timely manner? So, you know, where do we see some of the biggest challenges and pitfalls? I just briefly mentioned the one about, you know, making sure that we've got good internal controls and that that at times can be a challenge. But some of the other ones around, uh, more specifically, the, the close is you, oftentimes organizations are still very manual-based, um, paper-based. They're using spreadsheets to do a lot of their activities, whether it's the journal entries, performing our variance analysis, or even our account reconciliation. And because of that, that oftentimes leads to a lack of standardization. What you see one uh, area or one person doing may not look the same as somebody else. And that creates some inefficiencies for the folks that have to then review those reconciliations. It creates some inefficiencies and questions from the auditors and things like that. So that too is an area of concern when we don't have that standardization and consistency across what we're doing. Um, for many, it's having that transparency to see what has been done, what have we done, what haven't we been doing, uh, what isn't done yet. And especially for those organizations that are about to go public, you know, those checklists, making sure that they're, they're getting things done as they're supposed to be is critical. But for if you're using spreadsheets to track that and do that, Getting that visibility quickly to be able to see if there might be something that isn't getting done that should be that's, that's of concern, you just can't get that information very quickly. 
Um, there's also challenges around, you know, just the quality and training components of the work that we're doing. I can't tell you how many times as an auditor or even as a controller, I would go in and start working with an organization and I'd sit down and I'd ask certain accountants why they were doing what they were doing. And the typical response was, well, because that's the way we've always done it. No, if we're going to be relying on these folks to basically perform the activities that make up our financial statements, our journal entries, again, the reconciliations, all of those components, they have to understand what they're doing. The problem is, is that they don't often have the time to do that, or there's been that lack of training, and all we've taught them are the basic steps to go through, but not necessarily the whys of what we're doing, and does it make sense for something to be a credit versus a debit balance, and how do we find things that are anomalies that might not be right, so again, we can make sure that we avoid any potential errors or fraud. And then, you know, we've all, all heard about the issues around spreadsheets with respect to accuracy, um, you know, having to deal with the support and all of that supporting documentation, and especially if your organization is busy and you're going through things like an IPO or maybe you're even acquiring other companies, merging, there's so much more complexity to that, so much more paperwork uh, that we find that that can be a challenge for many folks as well. So, you know, the reality of it is, is that if we don't start to look at the way that we're doing things and really start to transform our finance function, we're putting our organization at risk. Uh, the complex nature of, of our businesses as we continue to go global, um, some organizations go 24-7, and maybe that doesn't even mean that your company operates that way, but you know, how many of us are checking our emails on the weekends and in the evenings? We are almost operating at a 24-7 pace. And so if we don't try to modernize the way that we're doing our accounting operations, then we could potentially be putting ourselves at a competitive disadvantage. So. What do we need to do in order to avoid these pitfalls? Uh, in many cases, you know, we need to look for a way where we can have that more efficient, reliable, and faster financial close. We've got to have the transparency and visibility into our processes to better manage it. Um, we need more time to actually analyze and report on the data that we do get coming in so that we can truly make sure that everything is accurate, and then we need, that way we can trust the data uh, that we're, we're now using to base our decisions on. So this all sounds good, but how do we get there? How do we even start to accomplish this? And I've come up with here with some, some ideas around some best practices. The first one is around standardization. Take a look at some of the activities that you're doing, whether it's your account reconciliations. Maybe come up with some basic templates to help them understand that if it's a bank reconciliation, Here's how you want that to look. So regardless of who's putting that together, it's going to have a consistent look and feel. Again, making it easier for anybody else that needs to go in and look at that, whether it's the approver and reviewer, whether it's management, whether it's the auditors. It also helps in case somebody's out of town and has to fill in for somebody else, makes it easier for them to understand what they need to do. Uh, having that workflow, this really helps out from an efficiency standpoint. If I'm finished preparing something, I want that go, to go immediately to my manager so that they can start looking through it and reviewing that and it continues to go through that process and we're moving things along as it comes up. Having the alerts, dashboards, and reporting if possible, I wanna be able to log in and see where are we in the close, what's been done, what hasn't been done. 
Uh, what came in late? Do I need to work on some training with individuals? Are we receiving things late from another department? Do I maybe need to work with that department head and help them understand that we need this information in a more timely manner because it's impacting our clothes? Having really good built-in internal controls, of course that's key. And then making sure that we've got up-to-date policies and procedures so that your accounting teams know exactly how to handle all of the things that they're working on. If they come across an error, who do they go to? What are your write-offs? limits? Who do they need to go to to sign off on those write-offs? All of those types of activities need to be clearly defined. They need to be up to date and accessible to everybody that's impacted by that. Now those are some fairly simple things, um, but here's some additional key attributes, and this is really kind of taking it a step further. The first is to look for automation. There are tools and technology out there, like Blackline, that can help companies with all of their different close activities whether it's just managing the month-end close checklist, whether it's preparing your month-end journal entries, your account reconciliation, all of those various types of activities, where there's, there's tools that will allow you to let the system actually perform a lot of that work and free up your accountant's time so that they can go in and perform more of the analysis type work and that value-added work. And we want to make sure that the information that we're getting and using is as real-time as possible. Uh, it's data-rich. You know, we can then be working with our other teams and provide them the information that they need. It's highly secure, metrics-driven, intelligent, um, and continuous. You know, we're constantly looking to improve the operations that we're doing. I want to take just a moment here to give you a little bit more information about Blackline and some of the success stories that we've seen. Um, as you can see here, uh, Blackline's been a tremendously growing company. We've got currently over 1,500 clients, over 147,000 users, and I believe it's now over 120 countries. Um, you know, recently Gartner recognized Blackline as a leader in the FCPM quadrant. Just to give you a little bit of a sample of some of the clients that we work with, now again, keep in mind these are very large organizations, but we've helped many organizations of all size. You can see here we've had 20% you know, less reductions on reconciliation, 70% reduction in the days to close, 55% reduction in manual effort, 25% improvement in efficiency. Some really good wins for some organizations, and especially those that are large or ones that are, are growing. Uh, this next slide, I'm not going to spend much time, just wanted to highlight here that, again, regardless of what industry you're in, what size organization you come from, that, you know, many cases, look to technology and see if they can help you out. See if they can help you free up those resources. Um, you know, if you're a small organization, again, resources may be tight. If you're a larger organization, your challenges may just be around, you know, trying to manage people in multiple locations or, you know, trying to accommodate management that's asking for the books to be closed faster and faster, but without additional resources. Gives you a great way to do that. So with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and hand it back over to Jack. It looks like we've got some time for Q&A, and hopefully this gives you a little bit of idea of how technology might help out. Thank you, Susan. We'll go right to the top of the queue now. Uh, someone has a, somebody has a question for Michael. Michael, you've pointed out that Undertone doubled the size of the company and therefore was material, making its reporting requirements almost identical to going through an IPO. But when is a company likely to be material to an acquiring company? And is size likely the most likely measure? 
Yes, I mean size is obviously matters. The SEC and other accounting rules are very specific measures, and uh, I mean one big example is for SOX. So in our instance, we had to hire one of the first hires we made was an SOX compliance officer because the company had never didn't have to comply, didn't have an interest, and just because we were already an existing established public company without any exemptions. That was a very big focus because it was so material. We had to really and had to follow up on those processes very quickly. Um, and Steve mentioned a number of other areas, right? If you are material for the overall company, FP&A becomes a very important function, right? Because you're reporting to the public and, um, you know, you need to have the processes reliable and so forth in place. So those are probably two good examples if you are material in size for the overall company, you have to beef up those processes very, very quick, uh, quickly. Okay. So, Steve, someone had asked this question. They explained, we are staying private, but 100% held by a public company. And uh, they want to know how they're required to comply with SOX. <laughs> Well, I think that goes a little bit to the question that uh, Michael just asked, was that um, is how material are you to the organization? So if your parent company is a public company, they have all the reporting requirements, but they have to go through a, what's known as a scoping exercise where they determine who's in scope and what's in scope. Um, so if you're a relatively small piece of the total enterprise, then your, the, the demands on your time and the compliance requirements may not be as great. So it's really a function of how material it is. Um, I guess I would say so that certainly that's a, a good position. You've got all the benefits of being a public company, but you're not a, uh, you're not, a, you're not large enough to really make a difference. But, um, as it relates to the, the reporting and the compliance requirements. Yet I still think there's a great opportunity to to take the best practices and how technology is employed throughout that organization, and uh, certainly um, leverage that in your in your piece of the your part of the world. Okay, so, Susan, uh, someone asks: Among those firms stepping up their commitment to back office automation, where are they likely to make an impact first? when it comes to compliance pain points? That's interesting. It kind of varies. Uh, I think a lot of times what we suggest for companies is to take a look at the different parts. Um, you know, the, the biggest component, I think, would be around the financial close uh, and all of those different activities. I think that's one of the areas where we see companies that can get a big impact uh, as far as, you know, addressing internal controls, um, a huge impact around gaining efficiencies, which of course the idea there is that if I can now free up the time, then I can take on another project and move on to the next thing. So I'd say, you know, starting with the financial close and then looking at where they might have the most risk or where they might feel they might get the, the biggest impact. Um, I'd say the biggest one that I see is around account reconciliation because many of us know that uh, it's kind of that necessary evil, but the problem is is that the way that we've been doing it, oftentimes, you know, we see that people, again, are putting together just the process, they're going through the steps, 
Um, oftentimes I see folks that are using um, roll forwards when maybe it's not appropriate to use a roll forward or it's simply a repeat of what's in the general ledger and not an actual true reconciliation. So by going in and taking a look at that, again, now I can make sure that you know, we really are performing a good reconciliation. Let's make sure that the numbers that we're putting out there are accurate, as well as let's try to gain some efficiencies around that so that we do free up that time. Okay, time for just one more. Uh, Steve, you mentioned, uh, this person says, you mentioned that frequently it's what a company hasn't thought about or is less obvious that creates a snag on the private to public path. Can you give an example uh, from the past or have you there? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think, so here's one. So um, certainly a company that goes public there, all the focus was around the registration statement. But one of the things that a public company has to do, the senior officers, is do a certification every quarter. And that's the certification regarding controls and, and the financial statements. But they need, but most companies go down in the organization and get certi certifications from others in the organization. And that can be, you know, in a large organization, that could be 50, could be 100 people. And so to not, so nobody really had thought about that. We always suggest you think about it and do a dry run before you have to make that happen so that people know what, what they're certifying to. So that could certainly be one that you wouldn't want to have the issues that come out of that that process doing that for the first time when it's, you know, it's it's game time and there's really not any time to to change that. So that that's a that's a very subtle issue, but it's just one of the things that um companies couldn't be surprised with. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Thank you for joining us and special thanks to today's presenters, Michael Waxman Lens of Undertone, Steve Hobbs of Pertivity, Susan Parcells of Blackline. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. At CFO Thought Leader, we wanted to give you, the listener, some added clout when it comes to selecting next season's CFO guests. We call it Listener's Choice. And in the months ahead, our Listener's Choice guests will enjoy some added box office clout as we advance the CFOs you most want to hear from into next season's CFO lineup. To learn more about CFO Thought Leader's Listener's Choice, visit us at cfothoughtleader.com or go ahead and email me at jack at cfothoughtleader.com. Hey, one last thing. It's no secret when we originated CFO Thought Leader, it was with iPhone users in mind. Android users, we have neglected you. And so to make amends, we just released a CFO Thought Leader mobile app just for you. It's now ready for download on Google Play and Amazon Android Markets. No matter what world you're part of, thank you for listening. <laughs>